Have you ever been lost in Brock's Mackenzie Chown complex? Perhaps you were looking for a seminar room or an office or perhaps an entire department. I think you could argue that you haven't truly visited Brock until you've had that experience at least once. And some of us are still having that experience a decade later. Well, today's episode of Forward, we are going to be speaking with somebody who knows a lot about Mackenzie Chown Complex and some of the amazing art that has been in that facility. Welcome to Forward. I am your host, Alison Innes, as usual. And this episode, I'm bringing you a conversation with a recently retired Brock employee who will be very familiar to some of our visa graduates. Leslie Bell started her Brock journey back in 1983. She graduated with an honors BA in visual arts and then continued her studies to earn a master's of library science degree from Western University in 1993. Over time, her job at Brock would evolve to include oversight of the Brock University Art Collection and the former Sean O'Sullivan Art Gallery on the main campus. And then when the visual arts department was moved down to the Marilyn I. Walker campus, Leslie Bell went with it and she was involved in conceiving and designing the learning commons in that new space. And her duties expanded to include managing the equipment kiosk and supervising student monitors. She constantly worked to develop opportunities for the space to further benefit students and the community and never stopped striving to make it a more inclusive place to study and congregate. And while Leslie was doing all this, she was also doing her own research into the now late Canadian artist Michael Snow, who was involved in some art installations around Brock's Mackenzie Chown. So I am super excited to bring Leslie to our listeners today as our featured guest. Welcome. Hi, thank you, Alison. Well, you know, um, the journey with the art collection began for me, as you said, it was became uh, an additional responsibility to me in around the year 2000, maybe 1999-2000. And that actually, on that very day that I sort of went down to the other end of the school, one of my first duties I was told was something was happening down and the uh, mezzanine level of the pond inlet. And uh, big renovations were underway there. I knew the space very well from being a student, but I hadn't been to that end of the school in a bit. So there I was with my camera, and there was a big renovation being done of the wall, like the mirror wall being taken down. And that's when I realized that there was a work on that wall. It was part of that mirror wall. It was like an exposed dark frame, rectangular frame. It exposed the brick wall beneath with a mirror all around the outside and a mirror in the middle. So we have this black frame, but the wall was disappearing. I was there because there were a number of artworks that had been displayed there, and they were taking display cases away. The, the cases were being ripped up, and I was busy bundling up these little artworks. But I looked up anyway with my camera and snapped a picture of that wall before it was um, taken down. And that ends up being probably the, one of the only recordings of Frame 1, and it was called Frame 1 of the installation by Michael Snow that had been part of the building when it was first made or built in 1972. And so it is really, that was just very superficial knowledge I had of it, because even as a visual arts student here, and Michael Snow, the artist, had come and given an artist talk. I knew him as a visual artist. I knew he was a filmmaker and we'd seen a few of his films, but I, I really had no knowledge of this sculpture within, the, within the, the building, within Brock's building. And so taking over the art collection, it became my, 
job at that point to figure out what was the art in this collection. And a survey had been done earlier, about 1987, with rudimentary information and a picture of each work that would have been part of the art collection, but no backstory to any of them. And who knew where all those pieces were at this point 11 years later? So I, I had to start locating everything. And yes, there was a picture of one of these bits and pieces from an installation that was labeled as Michael Snow. And so I thought, yeah, that had something to do with that mirror, that mirror wall. And so I began with curiosity to try and find out more about this work. And it occurred to me that each one of these artworks have their own story, and each one of them is embedded in the history of Brock, too. So that's what I felt like as I started to gather information about the artworks and about the snow installation, that I was looking back in time. Mm -hmm. So the building that we now know as Mackenzie Chown Complex was originally called an academic building, something like that. It was built in 1972, and Michael Snow's original art, multi-piece art installation was 1972-1973. So this is actually the 50th anniversary, um, which is one of the reasons I'm really excited to have you um, talking about Snow's art. And we also lost the artist um, himself. He, he, he passed away in January. Mm -hmm. So for people who maybe aren't familiar with Michael Snow or the name or some of the pieces, um, could you tell us a little bit about who he was? Oh, you know, um, film studies people are, are very well versed in what Michael Snow can do. He's known as a, as a filmmaker more than anything, I believe. But he was a, what's he called, a polymath? You would call that person a polymath. I think he's primarily, and this is just based on my own opinion now, a musician. Mm. He's a musician. And, and when he describes a lot of his art, art statements that I've read, they, there are a lot of allusions to musical terms. He talks about something, even in this installation, having a fugue element to it. In other words, repeating uh, patterns over, you know, repeating and repeating, or nested patterns, which are musical patterns. And he calls this a composition, like a, a, like a multi-part composition, and talks about taking a reading of the composition, as if it's like a piece of music that you're going to enter into. Snow was, at that point, in 1970 to 72, he was representing Canada in the Venice Biennale, um, the first solo artist to do so. He had a solo exhibit of his work at the National Gallery. Um, but even Canadians mostly knew him from way back, and I did, when, when we went to Expo 67 when I was a teenager. And there were Snow's sculptures of a walking woman. There was like a cutout figure of a walking woman. And she was everywhere, all over the Expo site. She was on the, the Montreal metros. Um, and so people were kind of got, got familiar with the idea of Snow as a sculptor, really. But then he left and went to New York City for about 10 years then, and uh, didn't come back till just prior to the making of this work that he did here at Brock. And my generation might be more familiar with Snow because of the work that hangs in the Eaton Center, um, and I'll put a link in the show notes. There was a, a lovely interview on CBC Radio recently that they have restored that, and they're in the process of rehanging a Flight Stop, which is 60 Canada geese. So if you have been in the Toronto Eaton Center and you have looked up and seen those those geese. You have seen a Michael Snow work. And I understand he also did some work on the exterior of the Sky Dome with the, with the fans. So there's a couple of, of um, recent pieces that people might have seen and not realized what they were looking at. So he was really a prolific artist doing photography and film and sculpture. So 
how does he get connected to Brock? And why Brock? Um, I'm, see, there's another theory I might have, just an idea. He was, he was engaged by the architect, uh, Raymond Mariama. Both of them at the same age. Um, both of them sort of at a point in their career that it was beginning to launch for them. They had a good, steady, uh, mid, maybe you called it their mid-career. Uh, Raymond Moriyama had just completed a couple of years from when he was invited to do the work for Brock. He just completed the Ontario Science Centre, which was a really radical building. They wanted a science museum, not a circus, as it was called, when it first opened. But of course, the public loved it. And he really understood how a building could work for its purpose and how space could be used. And of course, we mustn't forget, he was a chancellor of Brock for a number of years here too, after that. Um, and, and I heard him speak here once, and he talked about the integration of exterior and interior space. He had a real Japanese aesthetic in his um, work, and you see it here at Brock. So I have this idea that his office was on Cumberland Avenue in Toronto. And Michael Snow was represented by Isaac's gallery just around the corner on Young Street. And I had the opportunity to talk to one of the architects from Moriyama's office, saying, how did they get together? And he said, well, on Friday afternoons, we used to have these charrettes in the office where we'd invite people from different walks of life to come and talk. And I'm just thinking maybe, maybe they met that corner, maybe he'd heard of Michael Snow or the artist, you know, this artist gallery around the corner. And they must have clicked very well. Um, I have a letter, just a brief letter from the Moriyama office where he said Michael Snow was a very creative man and that from the beginning, this was an art and architecture um, collaboration. And so what, what Raymond Moriyama did, because he was hired to des design a building and Snow would have had to, as a public art artist, have to observe the new parameters if they're going to collaborate for this space. And it was an academic building, purely academic. So ranging from the A block to the, I don't know how many blocks it goes, <laughs> D block, I guess on the 300 level, you've got, actually it was all for students. You had a cafeteria on one end in the A block, there was another cafeteria on the other end in D block. And so and that uh, that cafeteria on A block end would now be the current, it's currently the Dean of the Faculty of Humanities. And um, I believe there's some uh, co-op and co-op careers and experiential education offices in that hallway as well. So that was all cafeteria. Oh yes. And on the other end was also cafeteria that was in operation when I was a student here too. And that's and then, Pond Inlet. That's a Pond Inlet. And of course the lounge above it kind of hovers like a, we call it a mezzanine level. Um, but the cafeteria was down below with this beautiful full wall, uh, window wall. You mm -hmm. know, you could look out on the, on the pond. Um, designed to be a beautiful space right from the beginning. Um, so Snow, would have, as, a, as a public artist, would have been working with these parameters that, that knowing that he's got a building, he's got a corridor with that meandering uh, aspect to it that we talked about earlier that Allison mentioned, that zigzag. And I think he, he, he thought of the experience of walking that hallway, the people, the students, the population, the faculty that would be using those hallways and walking those hallways on a daily basis. For him, it was, he was sort of working with a, with a new idea. So one of the urban legends, um, and I'm kind of excited to, uh, to um, break the myth, I guess, around this, uh, because it's certainly something I heard when I came to Brock, is that Mackenzie Chown had been designed to prevent students from congregating. But that's not at all what the architect was going for. 
And once I learned what the architect was going for, the space made a lot more sense to me. So what were they trying to achieve in this zigzaggy, slightly confusing building? Well, you know what? This is not my own idea, but it's when uh, Dr. Scott Henderson was here at the university, he and I did a snow walk, walking through what was, what was, and he brought in some theories of space. He talked about, he felt that Moriyama was designing hallways where people would meet and be lost, maybe just a bit disoriented because you're zigzagging along. You're not aware that you're, you're constantly turning corners. And he felt that people would have to stop and say, uh, can you help me? I'm lost. In other words, you'd have conversations. You know, with well, people. he certainly achieved that. <laughs> but you do notice that there are maps on the walls. Yes, there are. There and are. they were all part of the early installation, too, because another architect in the firm was hired to design what were called wayfinding maps. So you have the maps at the corners for the C block and D block, and, and then all those chevron stripes, too, which identify whether it's a geology or geography. And, you know, if you look, they're, they're on the outside of the building, too, those mm-hmm. navy blue and lime mm-hmm. green stripes. So we are actually going to record a bonus episode of you and I uh, walking through Mackenzie Town, looking at what remains of Snow's art. Um, So I'm just going to plug that right now for our listeners. If you're trying to visualize um, what we're talking about, you'll actually be able to do a walkthrough. And I just had the the experience just a week or two ago where I I do not venture into some of those some of those science blocks very often. And I was with somebody else and I had no idea where I was. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, I know exactly where I am. And I had one of those moments and I thought of of the architect and the artist working together to create that experience, which can be a little frustrating if you're late for class, but on an experience level is a really neat experience to have. So some of those spaces now have been changed a little bit. There's spaces that have been closed in that were maybe left open. But Snow's art was made to go in and work with the architecture and the building. So I wondered if you could tell us some of how this multi, multi-piece installation worked. Right, because he, he, the word he uses is he wanted it embedded in the architecture. He had many ideas before he finally settled on this one. I, I want to talk a bit about research, actually. Yes, definitely. Um, because this was the only experience, the, probably the more, most full experience of, of research I've ever had in my life and probably <laughs> ever will. And it became almost, uh, not an obsession, but if you, if you study something hard enough, it sort of really starts to take over. And even in the past two weeks, contemplating what I'd be talking about today, I realized I'm just like, I'm over full. <laughs> I'm over full again. I can talk too much. Um, and I'm making notes again on things that I hadn't noticed before. And it's just too much. So... Um, so what was it like researching? Where where did you have to turn to? What kinds of sources did you have to, to look at? How much of the art was still around? Well, um, well, of course, I was going to be researching the, the collection as a whole. And so I knew that our own archives here could offer some help. Also, this is an institution where everything, and the snow stuff, still lives. So at, even in 2000, there were still people around from 30 years ago who had some memories of it and I had to, I found some and I found I found one admin assistant who remembers being a student here and engaging with this installation wonderful and I mean I haven't just told you how it really works yet but 
this was the exciting part of the snow installation, I gather, for students. And he, this is the participatory part or the experiential part that he really, it was kind of interesting. You, you walked in front of a video camera and using a closed circuit technology, that image of you walking in front of the camera showed up around one of those zigzag corners about 30 feet down the hall on a monitor. So, and it was live, it was a live stream, I guess you would say. Although Snow had wanted a delay, it couldn't be done. So it was a live stream. So your friends are watching there on the monitor, watching you walk along the hallway. They know you're coming, you know. And so there was this sort of play of, you know, people sort of performing for the camera and their friends. And so there was that play aspect. And, um, for him. and he incorporated mirrors into his work as well, so that mm -hmm. you're you are being reflected back. And oh, I know. Um, <laughs> um, but I but I asked that architect about mirrors when I had the chance to talk to him about how they might have got together. And that architect said, "Well, mirrors are just an architectural material." He said, and I thought, "Oh, so there was nothing." Um, I think, I think Moriyama, it was part of his strategy to bring the inside and the outside, kind of bring them together. Um, having this huge mirror wall reflect the beautiful pond, you could actually sit back in that. I remember being a student, sitting back in that lounge and looking up at the slanted kind of mirrors above you, and you could see the, the waterfall almost falling over your head, reflected. Wonderful. I'm going to try that now. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was an architectural material, mirror is, but I think... Snow looked at it as a what he he gave it a, he called it flux, it's it, it's flux it's it's fleeting, mm. whereas he's also got two other he's got two other what we'd call image capture devices he had a still camera, a photographic camera doing something, and he had a video camera capturing too, and then you have a mirror which just reflects but doesn't record, in any way. So he's playing with time. Yeah, in a way there too, right? Well, the whole, the whole installation is called timed images. And, and over the years, I've, I've been trying to think about why that title, because the title sprang up out of his notes, mm -hmm. just timed images. And I actually wrote once, like, where did this come from? Because I couldn't find a... But he, he, he sort of found a... That name came to him, and, and it, it does describe it. Although at the time, I thought... It might just be one of another joke of his, and I'm not sure. Do these images have a time limit, sort of thing? Are they timed? Mm. You know. Um, so, I, so I'm not sure. He's a very playful architect, as you said, or not architect, Art, artist, artist. As you said, he worked with architecture outside the dome. You know, with that yeah. that sculpture. Or I guess there. it's the Rogers Center. I think I I think yeah. I said Sky Dome, didn't I? Showing I, my age. It's a dome in my <laughs> yeah. Or or even in the Eaton Center too. I mean, there's some the fact that you've got a flock of geese flying through the Eaton Center is kind of ironic in a way mm -hmm. too. So I was thinking after you, you and I spoke a f about this a few weeks ago, and I was thinking afterwards how we take it for granted today. We have so many recording devices, video photography, we're, we're constantly immersed in that kind of atmosphere. But I was thinking back to 1972, when he's putting together this installation, he's dealing with more limited technology, but he's also, the users are not, like senior self on a screen is not normal, is not a usual thing in 1970s. Well, you know, he was using it. It was then an emerging technology video 
don't think of it now, mm -hmm. but it was. And I had the opportunity to work with it a bit in the early 70s as well. <clears throat> and it was it was called portable, but it was hardly that. It took two people, but at least you know, one to carry the battery pack and one to carry the camera. Um, and so you always work with this person in tandem with you. But it, it was totally freeing because it wasn't in a broadcast studio. It wasn't these big honking cameras you see, you know, uh, that would have been coming from CBC or, you know, a very big broadcast studio. Um, these were very portable and they allowed people to see themselves in a very informal way. And when Michael Snow was teaching at NASCAD, um, <clears throat> now NASCAD University, that's in Halifax. That's um, the Nova Scotia's College of Art, College Design. Of Art and Design. Yeah. He was teaching there in 1970 and corresponding with Mariama because the two of them were already engaged in this project. And he was thinking and sending ideas back and forth all that summer. But in the fall, he was teaching at, at NASCAD and he wrote back and said, students here are using this video projection technology here. And he said, kind of interesting. I'd like to try it myself at Brock. And so he was that kind of a mind, he was that kind of a, an artist and that kind of a creative and curious mind that he seized on something new and began to think, what could he do with it, you know? Um, and so he brought that idea back with him. Uh, he, he was just, uh, he seemed to me to be, and I have the opportunity, I think, for those two years in, involved in this project and all the papers and documents I assembled, I feel like I was on his, almost in his mind for a couple of years because I, through the research, through starting here at Brock and finding basic notes on, on what was here at Brock. And then I, I knew that he'd left personal papers at the Art Gallery of Ontario in the library and archives there. And so I ventured there <clears throat> and was rewarded with really fat file folders of stuff. The man did not throw anything away. And it was wonderful. It was like just like a treasure trove of all the things to do with the making of timed images and the attendant piece, which we'll talk about too when we do our walkabout. I just call it the photo essay. It really never had a name. That's the one. It now hangs in the stairway in A block. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, we will talk more about it, but it's also yeah. very cinematic. Um, oh, yes, indeed. As it's yeah. still, still images, but still playing with, with, with the idea of film. And so I had the, you know, I sort of felt that he had, uh, he was one of these quick-minded people that just liked to try something new. Um, although he never used video again in any of his work. Oh, that's very interesting. It's the only time he did it. I had the opportunity to meet Michael Snow. <laughs> First of all, I had the nerve to, you know, to write him out of the blue um, and say, I want to make a little video on your artwork here. Perfect. I was just going to ask you about your video. And nobody had really, because the artwork had been removed over time. Uh, this is an institution, and there are changes, and things happen. And I, I can probably trace the demise of this artwork, you know, over time. But he he was quite aware of it. I think everybody was afraid of meeting up with him in case he sued them you know, for, for ruining his artwork. But in truth, he was, when I wrote to him, he was really excited to hear that the work still had resonance here among uh, people at the university. And um, yeah, it gave me permission to use anything that I found in the archives, you know. And I said I'd keep in touch. And then I thought, well, I, because Scott Henderson had been making me think more of Moriyama and this collaboration, I also got permission from, from Moriyama just to 
let him know what I'm doing, what I'm doing. And, and I thought more about them. I, I began to think more what I could find in Moriyama's behalf. So his works or his papers were at the uh, province of Ontario archives, which are at York University. And I looked them up and saw that at the very end of everything listed there, all stuff to do with Brock, at the very end, snow. Just said one file folder. And I thought, hmm, it's worth a trip. And it really was, because Wonderful. this was all the handwritten and typewritten correspondence between Snow and Mariana's office, all the idea of building and the tossing back and forth of things that he might do, and, uh, and also the, um, the tossing back and forth of what budget he could carve out, because what Moriyama off was offering was that we'll find money within the build here to, to create a piece of public art. And so that's what this was going to be. And I even found a letter, um, and I don't know where, but I know it was from the archive upstairs, to James Gibson, who was the president at the time, from one of his colleagues, I believe in Concordia, talking about the, a percentage for public art policy that Concordia was putting in place. Mm. And he was, he was reporting back to James Gibson, talking about, yeah, we do it here, you might do it. And I'm thinking that's why the administration at Brock was so... Sure, let's go for it. Let's have, you know, carve out some money and let's have a piece of art that comes along with the building. Mm -hmm. So it, it seemed like a very forward-thinking kind of administration at that time. Uh, maybe they felt that, you know, and James Gibson, I know, he always was extremely supportive of artwork. He was the first president. He was very supportive of artwork. And we've got some lovely pieces around campus, outdoor sculptures um, as well. And I'll put some links to some information about those um, that have been gifted to the university over the over the years. There, um, and I'm blanking out on the titles because I don't have my notes in front of me. But there's the one with the with uh, the lambs, I think lambs or lions. The possibility. Yeah. Yes. Path of possibility. And then there was the she wolf. I the think? she wolf. They're the both by the same artist, yeah. actually. They're a German artist. So yeah, we had yeah we donated some that that large collection too, and just some actually there's one piece that's in the I don't know what you call it the pedestrian corridor uh, outside um, Cairns and between Cairns mm -hmm. and, and the you know the Mackenzie Town. There's a, a, a bronze column there that that's kind of in the trees now. It's a lovely little contemplative space that they've put it in, um, and it was the first sculpture that Brock ever had. I'll and have it, to look for it. And it came from Expo 67. Wow. Because a number of uh, artworks were commissioned for Expo from across the country. And the artist of that piece was a woman sculptor from the West Coast. And she, and James Gibson knew who to apply. Anyway, he applied to the folks at Expo 67 for the university to have that artwork. And it came here. And so, he, but that's part of the backstories yeah. I end up finding in my job. I think realistically, an artist like Snow would understand that he may not have done video again just because it is a, it's a time-based media. In other words, it has a has a lifespan in terms of technology. Um, it the the actual installation, the video camera, the monitor, the whole. I can't trace it past around 1980. Okay. To There's a there's a, a fine arts committee meeting that was held around 1982 where, and I saw that there was one word snow on, <laughs> on their agenda, and I thought that's probably about their dealing with the fact that um, Mackenzie Town is being transformed. I found this out. The um, geology 
library, the geography library, I should say, yep. was moved from the main floor up to the third level. Okay. That's exactly where the installation pieces were, the okay. camera and the monitor around the corner. And I think they probably weren't working at that time. And so when it came to refurbishing that whole corridor, they were just removed from the walls. And when we do our walkabout, you can actually feel the walls, <laughs> feel the wall texture and feel where they took them out and put okay. fresh bricks in and then paint it over. <laughs> because the uh, technology he would have been working and working with, and some of us remember the, remembered the uh, earlier days of computing when you had to have a screensaver, like images would become burned into monitors and that kind of thing as well. So there would be kind of a point where things break to the point of not being repairable. One of the, the most fun things I had at, that, uh, at the archive at the AGO, I was turning the pages. I was with my friend Tracy, the videographer, because at that point we decided let's start recording things. Um, so I'm turning the pages and I saw one of his scratch pages. He seemed to me he might have been sitting at the phone and he's writing down numbers and he's got Phillips something, or he's got model numbers and you know dimensions and things like that scratched on a piece of paper. At the very top though he's got burn in of image and he's underlined it and circled it. And I thought, I know, somebody is just talking to him saying, Michael, Michael, I want you to know about this though. Like, you can't just leave the camera on the same thing all the time because the image will burn in. There'll be a burn in of image. And he probably thought, that That's fantastic. <laughs> because then that, that plays into the whole timed images. And you know, your word play just sort of, it, because it's, it's about the, the nature of the technology. He's almost like he's let the technology by its own nature just tell its own story. And so he, he planned it for that image to finally burn in. Um, the, the image that the camera was, was trained on a certain image across the hallway from it, people would move between the image and the camera and kind of blur things up a bit. And, but that image over time did slowly, I believe, swallow up what was being transmitted to the mm -hmm. monitor around the corner. Um, because he was at the cusp of a technology. You've got the cusp of, of analog and digital right there. Mm -hmm. um, and so analog, pushing it and seeing, seeing what you can do with it and how far, how far you can go. You've got the analog camera making a fixed image that's, you know, that, you know, from the negative to the positive, you know, the film. You've got that, you've got that, I would call it like really kind of analog technology with a video technology, which is fl more fluid and moving. And an entirely different um, idea, uh, like a, a, a camera, a video camera, is a, is a moving, moving stream of light, <laughs> you know, so to mm -hmm. speak. I mean, I was trying to think today, we use the word digitize all the time. But, you know, what do we really mean by it anymore? It's like uh, we're just making it so the computer can read it. Mm. But um, so, we, you know, we digitize things all the time, digitize images and whatever. But we, you know, we're making it so we can see it on a computer. But if the power goes out, you don't see anything. And one thing about having a, a like analog is that it is fixed. It doesn't have... You know, it doesn't have any fluidity at all. It's it's meant it's a snapshot, if you want. Mm -hmm. it, it's seen that way, and so it's in, so he was he, he was right at the cusp of a, a changing technology. It, th th those portable video cameras I'm talking about, this close circuit, put it in your own hands kind of technology. I'm sure all a lot of artists were jumping all over it too. Yeah, you know, at that time in the early 70s. Yeah. So I just want to 
travel back in time in your story um, as well, because as I mentioned, um, you retired a few years ago from rock, but you were a long time um, fixture in the visual arts department um, and working in the days of slide libraries and things like that. And I thought it would be really interesting to hear a little bit about your journey and what you learned um, with visual arts and library sciences and kind of why, why you went down that route and what it was, what teaching art history used to look like before PowerPoint. <laughs> well, remember, I started in 83. Brock was still pretty young and the visual art department was so young that there were pretty much only three professors. Uh, two in the studio and one in history. <laughs> um, and it, it made pull in a few extras, you know, every, you know, and it started to grow from there. But the new hire for art history um, was Derek Knight. And he came, and I remember in this first, first lecture, standing up in the front of the class and saying, in his English accent, which I can't do, said, well, you know, we could need somebody to be a slide librarian if anyone is interested. And I sort of felt like uh, a calling. I don't know what it was. Anyway, I went to his office and said, I'd like to do that. So I learned how to make slides, photographic slides, because they're transparent, they could be projected, and that's how art history was taught back in the days. In fact, it was always done with two images at once. It was called the comparative method. So you'd have one slide projector, and these are, for anyone who's not familiar with them, these yes, are like the round carousel that goes ker-clunk, ker-clunk. So you would have one on one side and one on the other. Yeah, of the and classroom, yeah. So, so you'd have to have two, all of the slides in order and properly matched up. Yeah, and so not only professors in art history, but also the students who had to do presentations would use that method too. So I quickly became kind of a... <clears throat> A middle point within the department, um, working with students and faculty. I had a big light table, and I would make slides for people, photographing images from books, and then mounting them properly and having them ready for them to use in their presentation, but also labeling them. They had to go in a drawer somewhere. They had to go be part of You had of to be able system. to find them again. And so Derek and I really worked out a system of storing them away based on what they were and also where they came from. Who's, who were the artists? What was the country? You know, what was the culture? Um, and what was the medium? And so we had drawers and drawers of these slides, and I, I just grew it up. At the end, I think there were probably about 50,000 slides, and I sort of wow. I'd made a lot of them. Uh, and a lot of them, almost all of them, had my handwriting on the labels. <laughs> and so uh, I did that. But I realized in, the, in that process, still being a, a student, and then graduating, I really wanted to know more about, about the process of putting things away in this sort of this system, the idea mm -hmm. of system of storing things, and, and in particular, interesting, of storing images, because they don't have words associated, you know. Mm -hmm. They don't have words in them. They're not books, or they're not, but they're, they're images. And how do you identify an image such that you can put it away in a system? So I found that kind of interesting. And so I had an opportunity to take a year off from Brock and go to do the library science uh, at Western University. It was called um, Library and Information Science then. And, um, and so I went away and, and came back after that year. But in that year at Western, I really, could, I really focused on art librarianship and the whole uh, interesting conundrum of how you, how you catalog images. So because I felt like I was pretty unique that way. Um, it, was my, it was what I focused on. 
And I came back with that idea. I really love being a librarian. It, it wouldn't be, uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't be suitable in an, an academic setting like our own academic library here at James A. Gibson, but, but um, I really felt I belonged within the Department of Visual Arts there, you know, or at least, or at least working in the humanities, which are which then use a lot of imagery in mm -hmm. order to teach their courses. Yeah, so we're coming up soon to actually ten years of the Marilyn, um, the MIW. Yes, which is <laughs> yeah, it's 2015. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's just a couple of years away, and I'm just what 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 happened? Um, but you were kind of you well, you were very involved in the learning commons and that student student centered space. And again, if you could just tell us a little bit about what you did at the Marilyn and and what was the same, what was different? Um, well, with the transition, again, that Snow actually it, it, it experienced from analog to digital, I did too in my, in my work as an art librarian for the department. So images had to be digitized. Classrooms were no longer uh, equipped with, uh, with slide projectors. So profs were, um, had to start doing their own imagery, getting it in some digitized form so they could put it out as a PowerPoint or however they wish to do it. There really weren't too many options other than PowerPoint, I guess, because there were no more ideas like a slide carousel where you could kind of pick and mix and move things around. And, and also there was a, just a single projection usually, mm. which changed the format of a lot of teachers. They were used to that comparative method. So their own, they would say that pedagogy changed because of that. That's really interesting, the connection between the technology changing and then the pedagogy having to change to uh, to reflect that. I mean, I, that's what we're always doing, I guess. But uh, well, I guess it's a, it, yeah, um, it's an argumentative approach. You could have a you could have a, a like an image of a whole thing and then a detail of it, or you could, the way Derek liked to do it, he liked to throw up things that were to totally you could say a non sequitur, mm. you know, something Renaissance and something Andy Warhol, and you know, and and let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. you know, let's talk about how, you know, you know, he would generate discussions using that kind of method and it, and I found it really stimulating too. And so I thought, you know, teachers like him, instructors like him would have to change their, change their ways, you know, having just one image to work with, a whole parade of images if they wanted, but having, being able to, to show two at once sometimes, if I felt kind of generated more conversation. It was just mm -hmm. the way we were taught. Yeah. Uh, that's why I'm calling it pedagogy. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And um, in the Learning Commons, which is a really beautiful space in the Maryland, you were interacting with students. I know they showed student art in there. And I remember once that you were involved in creating a zine library. Well, you know, it, uh, I was looking at retirement at that point, And I had a, uh, I always like involving students in all my work anyway. Um, and so I had a student who was keen to be a librarian, and she had applied to Western as well, and, uh, and I think U of T, and she was waiting to hear from either one. And I saw some opportunities for, uh, for her to, to work with me that last summer. Uh, for one thing, both music and dramatic arts needed someone to organize their stuff. They had some interesting things to organize. That's, and I said, fine, you've got some, we'll, someone to do that. But then we, uh, I'd been to one of my professional organizations at OCA, it's OCAD now, OCAD University, uh, that's the Ontario College of Art and Design in Toronto. They had, a, they showed us their zine library when we were there at some spring meeting and I thought, hmm, 
this kind of interesting. Maybe we can get students involved in that. So anyway, I asked the student working with me to, um, we went to the zine library, visited it in Toronto, got a sense of what it, what's up with it, and, and decided to kind of start our own. And so there were a number of things to kind of already kind of include in it. And um, I don't know if it's been continued. I don't know if it's been continued. But I found out that a lot of libraries have, have a primary, secondary, and academic, you know, like beyond um, libraries and public libraries have invited zines as a way for um, students and people just to sort of um, identify themselves, tell their stories, and they take all forms. And I just love the little publications like they're, that. They're, they're wonderful. Um, and for anyone who wasn't a teenager in the 90s, <laughs> that's when I remember them being very popular. Um, zines are like the social media before we had digital versions of social media, where you made a little magazine, um, and you could maybe photocopy it, maybe it was a one-off, and you could trade them with your friends, you could sell them. Um, and they're still... Even with digital social media, there is still a thriving subculture around these. And I remember attending a workshop that uh, that was held down at the Maryland to help make to make zines and to do collage. I also too, in my generation, we made newsletters. We made we had little papers and things like that in high school. You know, it was it was mostly about doing your own thing, telling mm -hmm. your own stories, I suppose. And I I've I've actually been on a bus. A, a couple of times over the years, and I found a little zine on the bus. People just leave them behind, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, like a little piece of found art. Yeah. And so I really, I really like that as well. It's I love that it's this ongoing um, medium that just keeps getting rediscovered by each each successive generation and kind of reinterpreted a little bit, but that it's still the whole idea of finding ways to tell our stories and, and, and share that with other people. But you know, you realize it's, it's the tangibleness of it as well. Like mm -hmm. the little bound publication was it, you know, however it's bound, whether it's a zigzag book or whether it's got a little, you know, it's got a staple holding it together or, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a textural, it's a material thing and it's analog. And I, there's only so much, um, satisfaction I think you can get from like you know your, your cell phone as an object mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a useful object you know it's, it does all sorts of things for you well coming back to what you were but, saying about snow and the photograph that you have that um, representation of the thing that you know the electricity goes out or your battery dies you still have that representation well the hand touched it at some point yeah. you know yeah. it's not art but but a hand but it is art <laughs> yeah but a hand touched it in, yeah. in a way too yeah. and and I have and even for like photographs that I really value like in my own personal photographs I make you know I know where they are I keep them and other images that were digital that I value a lot well I've made them into hard copy as mm -hmm. well because I just don't you know I don't, I don't want to lose them I want that I want a tangible yeah. bit you know of my past like that and that need to be able to organize images um, certainly hasn't abated. If anything, it's probably even more necessary as we produce more and more, more images. And um, listeners might like to um, refer back or, or, or listen back to the interview I did with David Sharon, where we talked about this plethora of digital content that we need people in library sciences, people with archival training, art mm. history training, art training to help us kind of come to grips with all of just the massive quantity, figure out, sort it, organize it, make it usable. I remember being in library school and thinking and, and saying to one of, you know, one of my friends, like, 
I think there's work out there for this. <laughs> Uh, and that was, the, and and I hadn't. There was no internet then. I'd seen the internet as a library student, but most when I came back here to Brock, you know, blurbing on about the internet and computers and everything, like and you know, and Gopher and email and everything, they all looked at me like I had like horns, horns, <laughs> like what, what, what? Because I, I, but that came very quickly after. Yeah. You know, but I remember seeing an image download on the internet, a JPEG. It took 15 minutes. It was an oh. image from Japan, I remember, and it took wow. 15 minutes for it to download to my computer. Yeah. <laughs> I had a JPEG reader on my computer. Um, but, but, yeah, I felt I was a, a bit ahead, of, ahead like that. But, I, yeah, it was, really, uh, it was really an exciting time. But I, but I managed to see through my professional organizations that there was a big change coming to my own work, mm-hmm. the digitizing of all those slides and, uh, and a new way of teaching and copyright really uh, intervening in, in mm-hmm. many ways and making it so that libraries couldn't, uh, departments couldn't just use anything to teach their classes. They had to have licensed images. And, and so a lot of things changed. And, um, and so I ended up envisioning a, the learning commons, thinking that we needed a library sort of space downtown, even just a study space or a space for students to congregate. I wasn't really sure because I'm not a librarian in that regard. And I didn't know how much students would actually take advantage of it, you know. But I just, uh, just we were we were leaving the mothership, and so we had. I felt that we had to have something that that reflected like what, what the resources on main campus. The Learning Commons was. I don't know uh, if it. Well, I don't know how it, someone else might have developed it differently. But I liked that I mostly had um, music students in there, because it was a quiet space. And I found out that music students like quiet. <laughs> well, and I suppose just like Mackenzie Chown has changed and evolved over the decades, um, the Maryland IW uh, school will continue to change and evolve to meet our changes in technology and our and the needs of our students. And um, it's so exciting to talk to somebody who was involved in that at the very beginning as well. So I'm going to wrap up our conversation there because you and I are going to take a little walk and we're going to go get lost in Mackenzie Chown. Does that sound good? (laughs) Let's get lost. All right. Thank you very much for joining us today. And um, listeners, stay tuned for our bonus episode. Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website, brockuca slash humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Sound editing is by Serena Attella, and theme music is by Khaled Amam. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.